Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I'm happy to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. Now, if you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, please sign in through Blog Talk Radio. Well, tonight's show will focus on a new book and research through the tax assessor's eyes, enslaved people, free blacks, and slaveholders in early 19th century Baltimore. Now, my guest tonight are Dr. Donna Tyler Hiley and Noreen J. Goodson. Dr. Hiley received an MA and a PhD in history. After retirement as an administrator with the Baltimore City Department of Social Services, she served for 13 years as professor of history and chair of the social science department at Sojourner Douglas College. Now, she has contributed articles to a variety of historical and genealogical journals. Her current projects include an article on John W. Locke, a 19th century African-American prominent in Baltimore's religious, economic, and political arena. Noreen J. Goodson was born and raised in Baltimore, Maryland, and earned a master's degree in elementary education from Morgan State University. She is the corresponding secretary of the Baltimore's Afro-American Historical and Genealogical Society, Agnes Kane Callum Chapter. She is a member of several historical and genealogical societies of Baltimore City and County, Maryland, Virginia, and South Carolina. Now, Noreen began teaching beginning genealogy workshops in 2006 and has presented them at a variety of places. So let me give a warm welcome to Noreen Goodson and Dr. Donna Tyler Holly to research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, Noreen and Donna. 
Thank Hello. you. It's my pleasure to be with you this evening. Well, it's Thank a you. pleasure to have both of you. So let's begin at your beginning. How did you discover the tax records that you have talked about in your book? Well, as a retired person, I was looking for things to do to keep my mind active, so I began volunteering at the Baltimore City Archives. Noreen also volunteers there, and we've been trying to ensure that a lot of African-American records that might be lost would be eventually donated to the city archives. And one day while there, we were introduced to Dr. Pappenfuss, who's the retired archivist for the state of Maryland and extremely knowledgeable about Maryland and Baltimore history. And he called us into his office to show us these tax ledgers that listed slaveholders, enslaved people, and free blacks and their involvement with the city tax system. And Noreen and I just took one look at it and knew that it had to be shared with other people. And that's how the book came to be. Wow, how exciting to be invited in to, <laughs> to be shown uh, these books. So oh, yes. when you're oh, yes. talking about taxes, why were the taxes imposed and, and what can genealogists and historians learn from similar sources? Okay, well, um, the taxes were imposed because Baltimore and Maryland were just coming out of the War of 1812, and they needed to raise money to pay off debts incurred by the war. In addition, the city was expanding rapidly, and there were numerous requests for services coming in, such as roads to be paved and um, hogs to be pinned and gotten off of the streets, that kind of thing. So the city was in desperate need of money in order to meet the new, the needs of the expanding population. Exactly, yes. There was a great growth between 1813 and 1815, very, very great growth. The city of Baltimore grew from 60 acres in 1813 to over... 8,900 acres, especially with the addition of wards 9, 10, and 11 that were added on to the original eight wards. Mm -hmm. so, right, so, and you mentioned 1813 and 1818. Is that the period of time where you found these tax records? Well, yes, it is. There were, let me say here that there were other records available, and some of them are available online, and others are available at the city archives. But we chose these particular records because they identified everybody by race, and we wanted to be sure that we got this information out there to people researching African-American history and genealogy. Exactly. So, um, the books that we saw, uh, the other years that we saw, did not necessarily identify who was black and who was not. These two years, oh, 1813 okay. and 1818, did. And we could work with the original records, not, the, not some copy of the records. Mm -hmm. So true. were these huge uh, ledger books? Tell, describe what these books look like. <laughs> they were so large. <laughs> 
Um, I'm sure you've seen them. They're about the size of the books you see. If you've ever been to a county courthouse and you've seen oh, the yes. death records mm-hmm. and marriage records and that kind of thing, they, they are humongous ledgers, very, very heavy, and um, difficult in some respects to read because of the handwriting of the time. But these books were so large that I sat down at the computer and Noreen stood to turn the pages, and then she read the information to me, and I typed it into the computer. As a matter of fact, the picture that you use in our advertisement is a picture of us working with one of those ledgers. And the cover actually came from the tax records. Yes. The cover of the book came from the tax records. Yeah, it's from the 1813 tax records. Okay, so the 1813 tax record, was this one large ledger book or were there multiple 1813 ledger books? One large book. Mm-hmm. And the same for 1818. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what did the records reveal about the role, the responsibilities of women, white and black, in early 19th century Baltimore? Well, I'm certain that it's no surprise to you that women were completely marginalized in these records. Um, White women were always identified in terms of their relationships with their husbands. So if you saw a white woman who owned slaves, she was usually listed as Mrs. John Smith. If she was a widow, her her status would be listed as widow, and sometimes they would tell tell us what her deceased husband's name was, but they were never um, seen as separate and apart from their husbands. In addition, we learned that most of these, in fact, we didn't find any white women who had occupations. I take that back. There was one, but that's a special circumstance. But for the most part, no white women were listed as having a job. On the other hand, the free black women were listed without any connection to a man at all. So we don't know whether the white, the black women we found were married, widowed, single. We just knew their names and we knew what their occupations were because they had to work. The other thing about the white women is that they were totally supported by the labor of the people they enslaved. Exactly. We even double-checked the people's names we found in the tax ledgers with the city directories of the time period, hoping to get more information about the various people and possibly their occupations. Mm -hmm. Without a lot of success for the women. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) At best, they might be running a boarding house. I see, yes. So what specific information uh, do the records reveal about the enslaved? Okay, for the enslaved people, we learn their names, their ages, the taxable value, the name of the person who enslaved them, whether or not they were owned or rented. 
Baltimore had um, not quite a large population of slaves, and a lot of people found it not profitable to own a slave, so they would rent slaves from other people. These tax records would tell us who the slave was actually living with, but in many instances it also told us who the slaveholder was. That's what we learned about the enslaved people. Oh, in addition, we learned about their physical or mental condition. So if they were dubbed insane or blind or lame, that kind of information was also placed into the tax records. That information was valuable to the tax assessor because anybody with an infirmity was taxed at a lesser rate than somebody who was of the right age to be able to perform labor. So a young, strong, healthy black man would be taxed at a higher rate than an older woman who may be blind. Mm-hmm. So that's what we've me... got about the enslaved people. Um, do you want me to talk about the free blacks too? Well, Noreen, did you want to add Yeah, something? I wanted to, oh, I'm to add to that. As we were going through the books and looking at the various assessments placed on the individual enslaved people, I took note of the the various values of the people, and based on the value of the person, you could almost tell what their age was, even if we didn't see it. We saw that men were usually taxed up to a maximum of $125. That would be a man in full good health, able to do a lot of work for a, a number of years, I'm supposing. Women, as usual, are, t- are assessed at a lower value. The greatest value for a woman was about $80, and it would go down from there. We could tell if, some, if a woman was taxed at, say, $20, she might have been maybe in her teens getting ready to get into the point of time where she could bear children. But um, I saw prices for children that were even $10. Yeah. You know, what you're saying now, for those who may have listened to the show last week, uh, the price of a pound of flesh, here you Mm -hmm. are basically, you know, dittoing what was said last week about the the price. How much did they uh, cost or how much did they value the slaves and the amount of money that they were worth Mm -hmm. and taxed Mm -hmm. for? And also... Go ahead. Sorry. I was going to add, when it came to physical or mental conditions of the various enslaved people, they, we may see a comment saying that person was infirmed or that person was either underage and that was why there was a lower value or overaged and there was, that was the reason for the value, not what someone would have expected for an individual of that age or the, mm-hmm. or the individual might have been crippled or blind or defective in the head, defective in the eye, defective in something, or they might have been listed as cripple. Another Mm -hmm. thing I learned from other sources was that in those days, as is common now, people were very happy to try to lower the rate at which they were taxed. So they were... You have to look at these ages with with a degree of caution because a lot of people would lower the ages of their slaves so that they would appear to not be at prime oh, working yes. age. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So take us, okay, so you've shared with us about the enslaved. Now what about free 
blacks. Tell us about the free blacks you found in the record. The free blacks were um, difficult to get a lot of information for. We learned their names. We learned their addresses. We learned their occupations. But when we went to the city directories to try to find out more about them, they were practically never mentioned in those records. In addition, we did not often see them in the census records. Um, I don't know if they were overlooked by the census taker and not overlooked by the person who was collecting money, but they were difficult to learn a lot about. Some of the free blacks who were very prominent in the city, we were able to gain information about them from some secondary sources and other research done um, by other people. And so did the free blacks, I mean, I'm hearing you say that it was difficult to find information, but did you at least get an idea of occupations or did they own their homes? Oh, definitely. Any of that information available? Yes. The reason we found them in the tax records was because these free blacks were being taxed for property that they owned. Okay. Okay. And Mm -hmm. that was a fascinating thing for me to learn, particularly in terms of women. There were several pockets in Baltimore populated by free black women who owned their houses. There was one group down near where the stadia are, a street called Honey Alley, and then on the east side in the Fells Point community, there was another pocket of free black women who owned their houses. As I said before, Mm -hmm. we don't know what their marital status was. We just know their names, where they lived, and their occupations. Okay. And then take us to... Go ahead, Okay. I was going to say, we did find several ladies, uh, Charity Joyce, Lucinda Dorsey, and Rebecca Brightman. These ladies were either laundresses or domestic servants, or they were what they called market ladies. They prepared foods and, and flowers and groceries and, and seafood and would sell them at the various, at the wharves, or take them to the different markets in the city and try to sell their wares that way to support themselves. Mm-hmm. And uh-huh. pay their taxes. And pay their taxes, yes. <laughs> and yeah. pay their and, taxes. So there's mm-hmm. a question coming out of the uh, chat. Was there a certain minimum amount of property that people had to have to have their name recorded in the ledger? For example, if they had property of little value, could they have been omitted? Exactly. That was one of the things we learned from speaking with Dr. Pappenfus. And at this point, I don't really remember, maybe Noreen does, what that minimum amount was. But there were people, because I'm researching another 19th century African-American Baltimorean, and I knew a lot about him, I never found him in the tax records for that time period. And so my thought is that he did not, at that point in time, own enough property to be taxed. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that would happen that way. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I am not aware of any minimum uh, amount that you, they had to have, but I did go through the book and notice that there were several people in the 1830 tax assessment uh, along with there being pockets of free blacks living in certain areas around the harbor area, 
we noticed that we're a few people whose tax assessment for their property and the improvements on the property was $100 or more, which is a, a tremendous a lot of, amount of money in 1813. Mm-hmm. One gentleman named George Douglas in 1813 was assessed over $900 for his property wow. and improvement. Mm-hmm. And, and George shows up again in 1818. And I did not see a lot of people showing up both in 1818 and again, I mean, 1813 and again in 1818. But George shows up in both taxes, and in both cases, he is assessed assessed a tax rate of over $900. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of money for that period. It certainly is. Yes, it is. (laughs) Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's a lot. Well, tell mm-hmm. us about the slaveholders. Tell us, what did you glean from the records about the slaveholders? Well, as you may imagine, they were the easiest ones to find information about. We had we learned their names, their residence, in many cases their marital status, their occupation. We learned that um, there were people who's, who worked for their money, and there were a lot of people whose money worked for them, and they were listed as gentlemen under the occupation column. We were also able to find out the nationality of a lot of people, sometimes just by their names, but sometimes by the statements made by the tax assessor. They may say, Mrs. So-and-so, so-and-so, a French woman, or Mr. So-and-so, so-and-so, a German man. So we were able to get the nationalities. And to me, even though we're focusing on slavery in this book, there's a lot of information here available to people who were not of African descent who are researching their ancestors in Baltimore. We also were able to learn whether or not the slaveholders owned their houses or were renting from someone else, and if they were, then we'd learn the name of the person to whom they were paying rent. And the same thing was true for the slaveholders of their, the people they enslaved, whether they were owned or rented. So we really got a lot of good information about the slaveholders. Mm-hmm. Yes, we did. Yes, we did. Um no. Oh, were you saying? I'm sorry, did I interrupt something? No, no go ahead, I'm no ring. I was going to say, we. It was so easy to find them, and by looking at their occupations, I saw occupations, and in 19th century Baltimore that I don't, we don't see anymore. They, they're totally dis, have totally disappeared, and that was one of the reasons why we had to set up the glossary in the mm-hmm. book because there were occupations you just we just kept seeing over and over, and we we're looking at each other and saying, "What is this all about?" <laughs> well, give us an example of what you're talking about. Oh, for instance, what is a cordwainer? We kept seeing the word cordwainer over and over, and we kept looking at it. So, we I had to go online to find. Uh, obsolete 18th and 19th century occupations online to find out that a cordwainer is a shoemaker that works, that makes new shoes from new leather. I said, well, that sounds like a shoe, shoe um, a cobbler. Uh-huh. But in that time, a cordwainer was special because he worked with new leather as opposed to a cobbler who just repaired what someone else had already made and, and messed up. I have one for you, Bernice. 
Do you know mm-hmm. what a manufacturer of fig blue is? <laughs> no. <laughs> what is well, that? I'm, I'm not going to speculate about your age, but when I was a <laughs> child, my when my grandmother did the laundry, the last step was the bluing step. She would soak the white clothes in a solution that had blue tint to the water, and what that mm-hmm. did was make the whites brighter. And it was only after that step that she would hang the clothes up on the line. So in early 19th century, there were people whose sole occupation was to manufacture what they called fig blue. This is the pre-bleach era. Yes. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, I need to take you all back for a second to tell us about the free black communities in Baltimore. Uh, was there any pattern as to where the free people of color lived, and, and did they tend to live in alleys or rows or less mm-hmm. lightly on defined streets? Okay. They lived, um, as I said earlier, in Fells Point. They lived in southwest Baltimore. Um, In many instances, they did live in alley streets. We also learned that they did not necessarily live in racially segregated neighborhoods. So you may have a street like Apple Alley in the Fells Point District, which would have free blacks living in it, and next door there would be somebody from Italy, and down the street there would be somebody from Germany. So it wasn't totally racially segregated. And it does not really appear to have been segregated by caste or class either. So you had some people who were themselves free and struggling to get by, and their next-door neighbor may be someone who owned five slaves. What was the other part of your question? Uh, I just said, did they tend to live in alleys, of which you answered, or rows or less lightly on defined streets? Okay. Oh, I thought you had said something about the free black community. Was there a pattern? Was there a pattern to where the free black, free people of color lived? No, there did not appear to be. They did. They didn't mm-hmm. appear to be a pattern to where they lived. But they did live in some pockets because, understandably, they're going to move where they find other people that look like them. Mm-hmm. So as they as more people came into the area getting the jobs that had to do with working in the uh, sailing business or in that area around the inner harbor they're going to have low paying jobs and probably and I think the uh, housing that we found on at Honey Alley and and Busy Alley and Prim- Primrose Alley where the pockets were these were low paying jobs and low rent places that they could afford or they could move in with someone and and live that way. So given what you have discovered about the the free black community, I mean how how was the community in Baltimore similar or different from free blacks in other parts of of the nation? <laughs> I compare Baltimore's free black community with the free black community in New Orleans, which Mm -hmm. was stratified by skin color and caste. So, for example, if you were of a certain complexion, you could join St. Philip's Episcopal Church 
or the Brown Fellowship Society in New Orleans. If you were of a darker hue, you could not attend that church or join the Brown Fellowship Society. Baltimore's free black community tended not to be so stratified. They worked collectively for the uplift of not only their particular group, but also people who were still enslaved. The major churches in Baltimore used their churches as places where they would advocate for abolition of slavery, where they would bring in speakers. There was a prominent man named William Watkins who ran a school, and his niece was the poet and abolitionist Francis Ellen Watkins Harper. He had a school where his students paid tuition, but there is evidence, as demonstrated in a dissertation that a friend of mine wrote at Morgan, that he also surreptitiously educated enslaved people. And I think that that was true of some of the other schools. So there was like a a, a, um, a cohesive community concerned with all people of color, whether they were enslaved or free. Totally different from New Orleans. Yes, it does sound like it's different from New Orleans. Uh, mm-hmm. So we're going to stop right here, take a very quick break, and come right back and, and con- continue to discuss your your research. Okay. Quick break. Okay. Welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com, and Stitcher.com. Well, you have been listening to Dr. Donna Talahali and Noreen J. Goodson discuss through the tax assessor's eyes, enslaved people, free blacks, and slaveholders in early 19th century Baltimore. So I have a few questions for you. Were any of the religious entities also taxed or were they exempt? Um, The Catholic Church was 
I'm sorry, the Catholic Church had enslaved people, but we did not see any indication that they paid taxes. However, we did find one particular priest who, um, his name was Father Jean-Marie Tessier, and he owned about three slaves. Um, I suspect they may have been people who fled the Haitian Revolution because he had himself served in Haiti before he came to Baltimore, and he may have enslaved them to try to help them work toward gaining their freedom because at a certain point, I believe it was 1818, he didn't own any slaves at all. So we saw that individual, but we did not see any religious uh, unity, community kind of thing taxed for slaves. Yeah, that's true. And who were some of the interesting free blacks you learned about? Okay. Donna, you want to take that or no, should I do? Well, I, you can do it or I can, <laughs> whichever is easiest for you. Okay. Um, I already talked about Rebecca Brightman. Um, Jacob Gillard uh, was born enslaved, but he he was emancipated by the time he was 45 years old, worked as a blacksmith, and had at least one enslaved person working with him as an as an apprentice. He purchased his, his sons, um, and ha- and uh, one son in 1808 and one in 1812. He was also a founding member of Baltimore's Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church, and became famous through through that entity. Um, we have several m- men who, through their efforts, were. They were born enslaved but got their freedom. Either they bought themselves their freedom or they were emancipated by their slave owner's will. Um, I was trying to think of uh, Nelson Wells. That was the one I was oh, trying to yeah. think of. Nelson Wells. That's, Donna, you take the, take Nelson. Okay, I'll take Nelson. <laughs> Nelson Wells um, was a free black man. We don't know how he got his freedom. But he worked as a drayman, meaning he drove a cart primarily in the harbor area, hauling goods from place to place. He was so successful at that that when he died, he left a bequest to um, an an institution that started a normal school. And out of that normal school, we now have Bowie State University, which is Maryland's oldest historically black college or university. And this all came from the wages of a man who was driving a cart through the streets of Baltimore in the early 19th century. He formed a close friendship with some Quakers, including a man named Isaac Tyson. One of Baltimore's more famous streets is Tyson Street. And Isaac Tyson served as the executor of Nelson Wells' will. Okay, we also have... What an interesting story. Yes. (laughs) I was going to talk about Don Carlos Hall. Um, He was born enslaved, but he was emancipated by his slave owner's will. He's a member of two churches, Lovely Lane and Strawberry Alley, leader of a free black community and a member of the famous Sharp Street Church. Uh, When he died in his will in 1823, he left 
his wife, and his sons over $6,000 in stocks and securities and made a stipulation that his friend, possibly his executor, was to use $1,000 of that money to purchase the freedom of his daughter, Marianne, who had been sold to a William uh, Lewis in New Orleans. And if the uh, the whole $1,000 was not used for the purchase, whatever was, was left over was to be given to Marianne for her to use in any way that she wanted to use it. Now, as you're man- telling this story, as you're sharing this information with us, this it sounds like you went beyond the leisure book to find additional <laughs> information. So tell us, where did you go? Uh, Google is your friend. Let me say that. Google is your friend. Okay. <laughs> so we we use whatever city directories and and went online to any uh, uh, service or website that could help us with these different individuals. Um, because the the books themselves are not going to give you that much information. Right. In addition, um, we included in the book um, a list of sources that we consulted, and there have been several well-done books about that period of time in Baltimore. One is called Freedom's Port, the African-American Community in Baltimore by Christopher Phillips, and we use that a lot. And then there's Black Baltimore, the 19th century Negro Capital by Leroy Graham. Um, there's a book, I can't remember the author's name now, but it's called Scraping By, which deals with everybody in the city, regardless of race, who were working at minimal wage level and struggling to survive. So all of those sources are listed in the book. Thank you for mentioning those sources. Uh, mm-hmm. There is a follow-up question regarding Mary, since you yes. mentioned her. So so did they find Mary living in freedom in New Orleans? We were not able not, to determine that. Right. No. Oh, we also okay. used newspapers. We used yes. newspapers, too. That was another okay. really good source for us. Okay, so back to the leisure book. Did you find any schools uh, that charge tuition in the ledger books? Not in the ledger books, but in the course of researching some of the more prominent people, we did find schools. Um, We know that Sharp Street Church had a school. We know that Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church had a school. We know about William Watkins, who started a school. And there were other people primarily in the Fells Point area. There was the man, the Reverend John Forty, F-O-R-T-I-E, who, Dr. Pappenfuss believes, and I have no reason to doubt him, was a teacher of and a great influence on Frederick Douglass. Okay, wonderful. So I noticed uh, in your book that you have two maps added to the book. Tell us about these maps. Why were they added to the book? Okay. I'm a map person, and to me, you get a better idea of what the book is about or the general area if you look at a map. And what Dr. Pappenfuss was able to do was get a map to show the, the eight wards 
that were in existence in Baltimore in 1813 and superimposed that over top of a map of Baltimore today. And we could see that in 1813, Woods 1 through 8 pretty much congregated in the Inner Harbor and Fells Point area. This is when the city was approximately 60 acres big. By the time we get to 1813, three more wards were added to the city, wards 9, 10, and 11. Those three wards added to the ones that we already have uh, took the, the size of the city from 60 acres to over 8,000 acres. That was a huge amount of growth in just five years. And, part of the, and that main growth was due to the efforts of the governor and general uh, John Eager Howard, who was a big landowner and slave owner. He, he had great influence in the legislature. He had so much influence that Baltimore has three streets named for him, John yes. Street, Eager Street, and Howard Street. Yes. So with that, let's talk about your more interesting slaveholders and oh, what you okay. uncovered in your research. Oh, all right. I grew up in West Baltimore, and there was a street called Edding Street. Um and we learned that the street was named for a Jewish man named Solomon Edding, who was born in Pennsylvania, York, Pennsylvania, I believe, in 1764, stayed in Baltimore until his death in 1847, was an extremely successful businessman. He owned, in the first ledger, four slaves, and those people appear to be going by the names and the ages of the people they appeared to be an intact family. By 1830, he did not own any slaves at all. Now, for what reason, we, we weren't able to determine. But one of the things that I found particularly interesting about him, he was, he was so wealthy and so influential in the business community. He was one of the founders of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. He also served on the Baltimore City Council, and during that time period, on three different occasions, he introduced bills that would ban the practice of having people swear an oath of office to a Christian God. He was not successful in any of those attempts, but he did introduce that bill three times. So because my the neighborhood where I grew up, was not far from Edding Street, and it was a part of my almost daily life on my way to school. I found Solomon Edding very, very interesting. Um, oh, yeah, another, I can imagine. Mm -hmm. Another man that I thought was interesting was a man named William Price, and we don't know when he was born, but he was a shipwright in Baltimore from 1794 to 1833. He lived in Fells Point, and in fact, his business was located behind his house, and that house still exists, and it's now known as 910 Fell Street. He was um, extremely successful as a shipwright. He assisted in the building of the U.S. Constellation, um, and some scholars say that he was the largest slaveholder in the city. I'm not so sure about that. But in addition to the 21 people he enslaved in 1813, he also employed those who were enslaved by others. 
And one of the people that he employed was Frederick Douglass. William Price was the last person Frederick Douglass worked for before he made his escape from slavery to freedom. The um, There's one more person. I said earlier that we did not uncover a lot of women who were large slave owners, with one exception, a woman named Jean Volenbrun. She was a Haitian ref- she was a refugee, I'm sorry, from the Haitian Revolution. And when she came, she brought enslaved people with her. She settled in New York and that didn't work out too well because by the time she got there, New York had passed a law that mandated gradual emancipation for all enslaved people. So it could be that if you were a man, by the time you were 30, you could no longer be held in slavery. If you were a woman, it might be a different age. But this was not conducive to Jean Volenbrun's economic plans. So she uproots all her slaves, moves to Baltimore, and starts a cigar manufacturing operation in downtown Baltimore with 23 enslaved people. Several of her slaves filed a lawsuit with the help of an abolitionist lawyer who lived near where the cigar factory was. And the lawyer argued that these people should not be held in slavery for a variety of reasons. One, because France had outlawed slavery in 1794. Um, And two, because in Maryland, excuse me, a law had been passed that you could not import people into the state for the purpose of enslaving them. That was enacted, I think, in 1796, something like that. Well, unfortunately for those enslaved people, Jean Volenbrun won the lawsuit. Her lawyer argued that she was a temporary resident of Baltimore City and the law did not apply to her. It was really strange because she had lived here temporarily for 16 years, but she, the court mm-hmm. still granted her the right to hold these people in slavery. We were, after all, a southern state. So those are the ones that I found particularly interested in terms of those who were holding people in slavery. Quite interesting. A temporary mm-hmm. resident, which yes. still gave yes. her permission yes. to, to hold yep. slaves. Mm-hmm. It's interesting how the law can be manipulated. <laughs> That's true. All you need is the right lawyer. That's right. That's all you need. Mm-hmm. Well, I want you all to just tell tell the listeners, how can your book be used to expand someone's research? Noreen, you want me to do that? <laughs> you start and I'll finish. Okay, um, you, whenever you are researching, it goes well if you can follow a money trail. You have to keep in mind that enslaved people were property and therefore valuable. And so most states, as far as I've been able to determine, recorded tax information because that was how the states got their revenue. I know that in the state of Georgia, where my mother's family is from, you can find records of African Americans paying taxes during the Reconstruction period, which gives you an idea 
of the property they owned and what their status was in terms of wealth and economic development. So I say that the book can serve as an example of how you can research people in other areas other than Baltimore City by using the tax records as a good source. Um, It reminds me of your title for your show, The National Archives and Beyond. And so this is a good beyond beginning for people researching African-Americans. So that if someone uh, would purchase your book and look at the leisure, I mean look at your entry on your spreadsheets, how would they then actually get the actual ledger? How can they see the original record? Oh, they can go to okay. the Baltimore City Archives They by making an appointment first. You do need to make an appointment first, and it says so on the web page. Okay. By make, yeah. So if they they would have your book and they would identify an individual in your book, is there a way that they could go in and say, okay, this particular entry is on page such and such? (laughs) Oh, Oh, I see what you're saying. Uh, You know what? We didn't actually record that information, but everything that's in the book, came directly from those ledgers, and everything that we entered about enslaved people is information that is in the ledgers. So if you found a relative in our book, everything that the tax assessor had to say about that person is in the book, as well as in the original documents at the city archives. Right. It is a transcription. It is a definite transcription of the record. We didn't add or take away anything. The only thing we did was alphabetize the names in each ward, so you wouldn't be able to tell exactly where in the original ledger that particular person was there, where that particular person was, unless the ledger itself has an index, which in some cases it did. Yes, that's true. It did have indexes in many cases. So you could take the last name, go to the index in the front of the book, and it would tell you which page in the ledger that person's information would appear. If, for example, you wanted to take a snapshot of your ancestor actually listed in the tax record. Yes. I see. Yes, yes. So um, at the end of your work, Was there anything else that you learned about Baltimore and its people that we have not already covered? That we have not already covered. (laughs) I think so, (laughs) yes. The only, well, one thing stands out that in addition to information about the slaveholders, we learned that Baltimore City at that time was an ethnically diverse community. It was a port city, after all, and so ships were always coming and going from all over the world. In fact, Frederick Douglass um, mentions in one of his autobiographies that one of the things he found so interesting about living in Fells Point, which is the harbor area, was that he got to see people who looked like him from other places who were not enslaved, and that served Mm -hmm. to enhance his desire to be free. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. I was going to say I saw a diverse uh, list of occupations that, again, we don't see any necessarily see any more. 
Uh, there were manufacturers that made the candles and soaps and umbrellas, varnish and sugar refining. We had a lot of men who worked in the sailing business, making sails, making ropes, uh, rigging, merchants selling flour, lumber, dry goods. We saw a lot of officials like constables and justices of the peace, notaries, inspectors, and even some mayors, as well as a store owner selling perfume, crockery, fancies, which I had to look that one up because I wasn't quite sure what they meant by fancies. They had such a wide variety of occupations that do not necessarily exist or we don't call them by those same names anymore, and we had to do a little research on that. Mm-hmm. Let me add something, too. The when we were looking at the tax records, we only abstracted information about people who either were enslaved, were free blacks, or who were holding people in slavery. There are lots and lots of other people listed in these records who did not hold people in slavery, but you can learn the same things about them in terms of their names, their residence, and what kind of property they were being taxed on. We saw Charles Carroll, who was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, listed in these records. So it really is um, an encapsulation of Baltimore City at the time. We just chose to concentrate on those who were African-American or who had direct impact on the lives of African Americans. I understand. So if you do an addendum or a later addition to to your book, will you include some of the anecdotes that you shared with us tonight in the future, in your future book? Some of them are in this book. They are in the book. Mm -hmm. We have a section called Profiles where we discuss several people who were European and, and, and enslaving people where we discuss free black people we discuss shop street church a lot of that is already in the book and that's some of the research that we had to do above and beyond just abstracting from the tax records also we as we went through the names of the people in the book a lot of those names became the names of the streets that donna and i and many baltimoreans know by heart there were over a mm-hmm. hundred names of individuals that became street names, and that is included in the book itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, how can individuals obtain a copy of your book? The good part. Yes, <laughs> the very good part. It's on <laughs> Amazon.com, and is also available directly from the publisher, and their website is genealogical.com. So two ways that you can get it. In addition, I saw it listed on um, a site that I frequent called alibris.com, but I thought those prices were entirely too high. Supposed to be Mm -hmm. selling used books, but they had the new book there at a higher price. So it's available online. Yes, Amazon has the best price. Do you have any, any, any closing remarks before we close out tonight's show? Well, for me, it's been an educational experience. As I said earlier, the goal was to get the information out there. But because we are both curious people, we learn so much just by looking at city directories and going to the Internet and reading the books that are listed um, in the back of our book. 
And that to me was the value that not only are we able to share with other people, but we enhanced our own knowledge. Yes. And, and we're keep, and we're providing something that if we didn't do it, there's no telling if it would ever get out there. Mm-hmm. It'd be an un, it'd be a source that many people would possibly need, but didn't even know exist. And I'm sure there are right. other treasures treasures that are found at that Baltimore City Archives that have that are yet to be discovered. Mm-hmm. And it also points up for me the need for those of us who research to find some way to share what we research. You know, I mm-hmm. frequently mm-hmm. tell people that I know that when I die my daughter's gonna throw all the junk away. And so for me it's important to either write a book or to have a blog, or to post it, or to do something so that, or sh- just share. If you find something about somebody who is not in your family, and you just happen to come across their information, make sure that they get a copy of that, because otherwise, this is how African American history gets lost. You're right. And there's a comment coming from the chat room from True, and she's saying thank you so much. That these oh. ladies are inspirational, and oh. that she met Noreen several times yes. now, and just yes, they're I'm wonderful. So. Thank okay. you, True. I appreciate <laughs> that. <laughs> right, and I want to thank you all for for your passion, and I, I hear your passion for research, and the oh, fact yes. that you took that time for one to read it and the other to type it. <laughs> which, which sounds like an arduous task, but you, you did it and you published a book. And so I want to thank you so much for for coming on tonight and sharing this research with us. Um, and for everyone else, just please remember your ancestors left footprints and that mm-hmm. you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history family records, photo albums, tax assessors' books, and research at the National Archives <laughs> and beyond. So you can continue this discussion on the Research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji and also watch for the Black Progen Live with host Nika Sul Smith. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. And also check out my services at BB's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC. And my website is www.geniebroots.com. Well, I look forward to all of you joining me next week. This is your host. Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone. Good night, Noreen and Donna. Good Good night, night, Bernice. Bernice, And thanks again. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.